If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. We're in our fourth week, uh, our next to last week on a series on temptation. We're going to talk about the third temptation that Jesus experienced this morning. And then uh, next week we're going to kind of wrap up and ask what did we learn in this entire series. And so I encourage you to be here next week as we kind of put together the three weeks of what Jesus encountered into a summary message of how we face temptation on a daily basis. Now, before we get to the third temptation, I just want to remind you, review the two big things we've learned in the last two weeks, the main emphasis of the last two weeks. In the first week, we learned this, that don't sacrifice tomorrow to be satisfied today. Remember, we talked about Jacob and Esau in that discussion, and uh, Jacob and Esau were in line. They were uh, um, supposed to be the, the bearers of God's image, the bearers of God's kingdom. Esau was to fulfill that role, and he sold all of that, his future, his place in history, his glory, if you will. He sold it all for a pot of stew. We talked about that we are faced with decisions on a regular basis where we can exchange our futures, our families, our faith for something that satisfies an immediate need. And that we don't need to be sacrificing tomorrow to be satisfied today. The second thing that we learned, or what we learned last week, is that we are not to manipulate or try to manipulate God, but we are to cooperate with Him. Remember, Jesus was taken to the pinnacle of the temple and told to jump, and we talked about various aspects of that, but one of the things there was he was going to push God into rescuing him instead of cooperating with God as he went along the path. Uh, one of the things we talked about last week uh, was uh, that we have this desire within us to be proven right. And that we have to give that up. That, that God will do that. That God will vindicate. That God will justify. That God will show that we are right. That he is right. But we must trust his timing and his plan. Um, perhaps you heard that uh, a guy predicted that the world was going to end yesterday. Anybody hear about that, right? Okay. So this guy named Harold Camping, who was, is an 89-year-old guy, this is not the first time he's done it. He's predicted it many times before and, and really predicted it a couple of times. All right. 1994 was the last time he did, and so this isn't new to him. And, um, and, and yesterday came and went, right? We're here this morning, I, jokingly on Wednesday night, I told him I didn't prepare a sermon for today because what was the use, right? But uh, that was a joke. I did, all right? Now, here's the thing. I realize that those kind of predictions, while we kind of laugh them off, can be detrimental to the cause of Christ. As people all over the country look and see, see, that stuff isn't true. That's another reason not to believe it. And that most of us in this room realize that he does not represent mainstream Christianity. Okay? We, we understand that. And I am with those people that yesterday after called for him to, uh, which on Twitter and Facebook and news outlets, there was this call from Christian leaders for him to repent and apologize, especially to his believers that literally sold everything, lost everything because they thought the rapture was happening yesterday at 6 p.m. And I understand all of that. But there was this nerve yesterday that kind of ran through all of those calls and 
descriptions that unnerved me a little bit. There was this almost jumping up and down with the I told you so, it didn't end from Christian leaders. Okay? The See, we told you it didn't end. We're, we're glad. It was almost as if it was coming up to 6 o'clock. Christian leaders are going, please, Jesus, don't come back. Now, they, they didn't say it that way, but it was, we know it's not going to happen. Nobody knows the hour of the day, which I preached on Wednesday night. I believe that. But it was the kind of the, the thing behind it was almost, we're right. You're not. We're going to prove to you we're right. And I, I tweeted this last night. Most, uh, most of y'all are on Twitter and you don't see it, but I put this out. I, it's almost as if, if Jesus would have come back at 6 o'clock, there would have been preachers lined up and go, why now? Didn't you know what this guy said? And they would have been upset with the return of Christ at that hour. Why? Because they wanted to be right. What I actually said was, I've never seen so many believers so excited that Jesus didn't come back. You know, because they were just, he didn't come. Yay! Now, I don't think that's what they meant. But sometimes our desire to be right overrides what we ought to be about. Because Scripture says, listen, if Jesus would have come at 6 o'clock last night, I would have been at the front of the line excited about it. And I don't think Harold Camping's going to be in heaven bragging to everybody, all right? And it just went to this layer of our desire for our side to be right. Here's the third thing. We're going to look at the temptation that comes in Matthew chapter 4, verses 8 and following. So after Jesus has been tempted with the bread, after Jesus has been tempted with standing on the temple, verse 8 it says, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All of this I will give to you, he said. Now, now, we don't know how this happened again. We don't know how he took him to a high mountain there. Scholars, I believe, he took him to a mountain that overlooked Jerusalem, and Jerusalem represented the kingdoms of the earth. There are some that believe that in some kind of uh, miraculous way, Satan uh, helped him visualize the kingdoms of the world. And, and what we have to remember is we, we've grown up in a time when we see this stuff all the time. Now, I can get on Google Earth right now, and I can look at the kingdoms of the world in seconds. Uh, we are used to seeing news from New York City and Los Angeles and Chicago and Brazil and uh, London and the Middle East. We're used to seeing the kingdoms of the world from our own home. We have to remember, sometimes we forget that Jesus grew up in a time when he was a local boy from a small town that didn't see this kind of stuff all the time. And so for Jesus, even in his human form, this would have been an amazing thing to see. Satan says to him, all of this I'll give to you if you will bow down and worship me. Now, one of the questions people ask is, well, did he have it to give? I mean, is, is Satan kind of pulling his leg here saying, Jesus, just bow down to me. I'll give you all this. And he didn't have the authority to give it. Well, here's the answer to that. Did Satan have the authority to give it? Yes and no. So that really answer the question, does it? He does in the fact that Scripture says that He is the ruler of the air, the prince of this world, that He rules the earth, that, that God in some way has allowed Him to have reign over the world, that He has allowed Him to have some 
ruling here. Now, we have to understand, all of that comes under the umbrella of the sovereignty and rule of God. And so it's not like God has given him everything and God has stepped away. It's just that he has allowed him to flourish here for a time being. And so in essence, he does have for a momentary time the ability to say, I will give this to you if you'll bow down and worship me. Now, now here's the thing. Jesus' entire mission revolved around the kingdoms of the world. Reclaiming it. I mean, Jesus' entire mission revolves around reclaiming the kingdoms of the world. Now, if we don't realize that, all we have to do is look at the Great Commission, right? And you'll be my witnesses. You're to go into all the earth, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey my ways. You're to make disciples of all nations. In Acts 1.8, that we were to go into Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. His entire mission that he has passed on to us is to obtain, reclaim, regain the kingdoms of the world. It's a redemption project. It's a reclamation project. It's a it's a resolving of a tension that has been around since the original sin. And so when Satan says these are the kingdoms of the world, what he was going after was he was trying to get Jesus to accomplish his mission. He was going towards the ambition of the mission of Jesus. Now, ambition is not always a bad thing. When God created us, he placed us in the garden. He gave us a task, a command, a goal. Remember, he puts Adam in the garden, and what does he tell Adam to do? Tend it, keep it, what else? What does, what does Adam also have to do? He has to name all the animals, right? I just imagine God creating all the animals, creating Adam, putting him down there, and Adam looking around, and God says, all right, now it's your turn to name the animals. God, there's a lot. There are a lot of animals here. Well, go ahead, name them, Adam. And about that time, a fly buzzes by, and he goes, all right, fly. And God goes, well, get a little more creative, all right? Now, that's not really there, right? But he did have the goal of naming every animal. I just want you to think about the animals that you encounter on a daily basis. Maybe you don't encounter any, you think, but there are those out there. Right now we are kind of made aware that there are animals that we may not be aware of at other times because of the buzzing sound, right? Anybody else have the cicadas start around you? All right, they, Our neighborhood yesterday began to become Cicadaville, all right? But God wanted him to have this kind of ambition. Think about Moses. He goes to Moses, and what does he tell Moses? i got a small little task for you. No. He says, you're going to walk into the most powerful kingdom in the world, and you're going to tell him to let my people go. And then you're going to lead this group of people from their bondage in Egypt into the promised land. That's pretty ambitious, right? For a guy that's not young. It's a pretty ambitious task. What about David? He goes to David and he anoints him as king and he tells him he is the chosen one through the prophet Samuel. And he tells David, you're going to rise to this great height. And he also tells David that your kingdom will never end. From your descendants will be one who will reign forever. Ambition is not always a bad thing. Now, 
The truth is, you and I may not have those kind of dreams and goals, but the truth is, God intends for you to do something significant and important in your life for the glory of God and the kingdom of His on this earth. He doesn't have any of us here just to take up space for a little while. And so ambition, goals are not a bad thing. What Satan is asking him to do here is to take a shortcut to the goals that God has set. Now Jesus responds and says, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. Then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. Each week I've given you just a a short saying that I want you to wrap your head around that I think is the issue for each week. And and this is the issue that I want you to think about, the saying that I want you to think about as it revolves to this week. And that is simply this. Don't do the right thing in the wrong way. Don't do the right thing in the wrong way. The issue here really is asking Jesus to shortcut his way to the end goal or to choose as we'll talk about in a minute comfort over doing what god called or receiving what we in our culture call instant gratification i want you to think about what in your life do you really have to wait on and here's the thing i want you to think about some of you have lived for many years some of you are are, have not But what do you have to wait on today? Or let me phrase it this way. What did you have to wait on 30 years ago that you don't have to wait on today? I read an interesting thing this week that talked about how speed has increased in America. And that until the late 1800s, that in the history of the world, nothing ever moved faster than a horse. No messages, no communication. No people. You couldn't move faster than a horse because you didn't have that ability. And in the 1800s, that began to change and has continually changed today. Now, I want you to think about today how many things move faster than a horse. Everything, right? I mean, I get mail to my door from anywhere in the United States, and I can get it next day if I need it. Now, I've got to pay for it. But if i got to have it today or tomorrow, I can get it. Now, the thing is with... Uh, with the way world is today, that, that doesn't even, you don't have to wait for things to get delivered to your door. I don't know if you saw this week or not, but um, Amazon, you know Amazon.com, right? It's the world's largest bookseller. This week, officially on Amazon, digital book sales outpaced regular book sales. Now, why do people like digital book sales? Because they can push a button and in less than a second, they've got a new book. Everything in our world is instant. For, for Christmas, now, Susan and I aren't even coffee drinkers, all right? It's one of those habits that I have avoided as long as possible because I know once I start, I have seen too many of you that have never stopped, all right? Amen? All right? So it's one of those things that I've just decided I'm not going to start, okay? I mean, if some of you love decaf. I mean, the whole point of coffee is the caffeine, all right? But over the Christmas holidays, we decided we needed a coffee maker. Now, the main reason is when my parents came to visit, 
or Susan's dad came to visit, they were making six o'clock runs to McDonald's for four cups of coffee, all right? And so we went out and got one of those Keurig coffee makers. You know what I'm talking about? One cup at a time, instant. Because we have to have it now. I love when my boys come in and... uh a couple of last night we were we were making spaghetti and spaghetti doesn't take long. I mean you know, ten minutes to boil the stuff, put some sauce in there, warm it up. It's not long, but they were concerned with how long it was taking to get supper together because they were hungry. Well, can't you just stick it in the microwave? No, we can't just stick it in the microwave. All right. What Satan was offering Jesus was instant gratification on his mission. But it was the wrong way to go about it. What he basically was saying is, you don't have to work through it all. You don't have to suffer. You don't have to be worried about that. Right now, I can give you what you came to do. It's tempting to take shortcuts. There's a guy out there writing. Business guys are reading him a lot. A lot of church leaders are reading him. There's a guy named Malcolm Gladwell. He wrote a book called Outliers about why successful people are successful. And one of his biggest points in there, some of it said is just when you're born, where you're born, to whom you're born to. That, that certain people start with advantages. But he said another area that he talks about is called the rule of 10,000 hours. And he says for anybody to become really good at something, they have to spend 10,000 hours practicing it. That's a long time. Amen? I don't know if you you might want to do the math in your head real fast. I mean, some of you can divide 10,000 by 24 pretty easily. But it's well over a year, full time, 24 hours a day, seven days a week doing something. He studied... um, he studied various people. One, one person he said was Bill Gates, who in the, in the 70s got access to computers that nobody else really had. And he spent 10,000 hours programming on it, developing what would later become the most used software in the world. He studies um, Canadian hockey players that are great and talks about the 10,000 hours that they spend training. One guy did this research, and who Gladwell pulls it from is a guy that did research on the Beatles. You ever heard of the Beatles, right? And the Beatles left England and went to Germany, and they played over 10,000 hours worth of shows in Germany together. And when they came back to England, they sounded like nobody else around. Because they developed that sound practicing together for 10,000 hours. Now, here's the point of all that. Nobody in our society wants to spend 10,000 hours practicing on something before they see results. They want it instantly. And where this temptation is going to hit you is in two areas. The first is when an opportunity for advancement in your life comes along. I'm not just talking about job, but that's a big part of it. When you're working and you're having these things and you've got this goal in mind and you think this ought to happen and suddenly 
an opportunity presents itself and you know that you're going to have to compromise some of what you believe or what you're doing or how you've lived in order to achieve it. But in your mind, you rationalize it because it's the next step towards the end goal that you have. And so you begin to rationalize and think, well, it's not, I'm not making that big of a, a change. I, I'm not making that big of a but but it gets me so much farther along my path or my plan. Sometimes this works out in the life of parents or grandparents who see the opportunities that their kids or their grandchildren have and they know the goals and the plans they have for them and they're like, if they would just take that step or if I could just help them this way, it would push them farther down their career path or their family path. And before long, you have compromised who you are. You've compromised who you are to attain what may be a good thing, but you did it in the wrong way. Now, Jesus, when he quotes here, he he says that you are to worship the Lord your God and no other. He quotes from Deuteronomy 6, same chapter as last week. It's not really a quote as much as it's a paraphrase. It's a a kind of a retelling. And I'm going to put on the screen what Deuteronomy chapter 6 says, and I want you to see that what he's saying here is that the times in our lives when this is the most tempting is when we're the most comfortable. He says that when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all the good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards, and olive trees that you did not plant, and when you eat and are full, then take care, lest you forget the Lord, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It goes on to say this. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by His name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the people who are around you on the earth. For the Lord your God is in your midst. He's a jealous God. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and He destroy you from all the face of the earth. What he says is this. Don't forget who it is that got you to where you are. As you're thinking about the goals and the ambitions and the things that God may have planted in your mind, don't forget who it is that got you to where you are. And he says, well, Israelites, when you, when you get into the promised land, remember Deuteronomy is the book where Moses is preaching his final sermon to the people of God before they enter the land of God. He says, you're going to get there and you're going to walk right into cities that have already been built. You're going to walk right into places that have already been developed. You're going to walk into wells that you don't have to dig. You're going to find vineyards that are already there. You don't have to do anything about it. It has been given to you. And you're going to walk in and your first impression is going to be, wow, look what the Lord has done. But then suddenly gradually you're going to begin to feel like it is yours that has done this. It is your people. It is your work. It is your ingenuity. And before long, before long, there's going to be a temptation to forget the Lord. And this is how you'll forget Him. You're going to notice your neighbors worshiping a God that that God promises a good crop this year. And you're going to worship, you're going to see a neighbor worshiping a a God that, that promises that your family will all be healthy if you worship Him. And you are going to begin to explore a little bit. And before long, you're going to begin to bow down to them. 
Jesus realized when the temptation came to him that the temptation was more than just, I want you to bow down for a moment. The temptation was that Satan was asking him to switch his allegiance. Think about Adam and Eve in the garden. When Eve took a bite of that fruit, she switched her allegiance from God to the serpent. And what you have the opportunity to do is to do the right thing in the wrong way sometimes. Here's the second place it'll find you. And that is when you are disappointed in the circumstances of your life. Either your life didn't turn out like you wanted it to turn out. You're 40 years old and you thought you'd be farther along the plan than you are. You're 60 years old and the plan never materialized. You're 80 years old and you look back and have a lot of, I wish I had. Or when suddenly tragedy or calamity or illness comes into your life and you begin to think it's not supposed to be this way. And in those moments, there are going to be opportunities for you and your discouragement to seek avenues other than the Lord for your comfort and your guidance. You know, there's a place in the New Testament when Jesus says almost the exact same thing He says here. In verse 10, He says, Away from me, Satan. Who else did He say that to in Scripture? Peter. You remember there's that time when He says, Get thee behind me, Satan. Away from me, Satan. Now here's the thing we have to understand. When did Jesus say that to Peter? Well, it was right after this exchange where Jesus talks about going to the cross. And Peter says, I'll never, ever, ever let that happen. That's not going to happen, Jesus. You don't have to suffer like that. You don't have to have that kind of life. Jesus says, yeah, I do. There's this feeling out there sometimes that as believers in Christ, that everything in our lives ought to be just right. That everything ought to be good. It ought to be right. That we shouldn't have illness. We shouldn't have problems. We shouldn't have family difficulties. And the truth is, Scripture never guarantees that. In fact, what it guarantees is, as a follower and a believer in Jesus, this world that is antagonistic towards Him will be antagonistic toward you. And what Satan really feared here, what Satan really feared in this temptation was not... I mean, think about this. Satan offers to give up something here. None of the other temptations required Satan giving anything. Right? I mean, the bread was just turn the stone into bread. The jump and the angels come. There's nothing Satan. Satan's willing to give up something here. Why? Because he knows the end game. is God's redemption of his people. And the thing that brought redemption was Jesus crucified. The suffering one. The suffering And in the midst of real difficulty in your life, whether it is professional uh, expectations that have not been met, whether it is family that has walked away from you, whether it is difficulty that seems to be there constantly, there is no end in sight, whether that's physically, emotionally, relationally, it is easy in the midst of that to begin to look for other avenues of trust different than God. We sang a, a great song today. That proclaims that no matter what comes my way, 
It is well with my soul. And let me just tell you, like many of the songs that we sing, that is a very easy song to sing and a very hard song to live. No matter, no matter, no matter what comes into your life, are you willing to say it as well with my soul? Jesus basically says to Satan here, listen, I'm not bowing down to you. And it's more than just the simple act of bowing. It is, I am not choosing your way. I'm going the way of God no matter what that means. It is well with my soul. Let me ask you a simple question. What in your life would you be willing to exchange your values and the blessing of God in order to see something accomplished? What in your life is there right now that you are so driven to see that happen, whether it's with your family or with your friends or with this church or with your job or with your social group? What are you so determined to see happen that you'd be willing to take a shortcut to see it occur? And are you willing as you realize that ambition or that goal to say, Lord, I want it done your way completely and I'm not going to exchange doing the right thing in the wrong way.